Do you remember that day in elementary school, the teacher's up in front of the class getting ready to do an experiment, and you began to wonder, what is she up to? She had the baking soda in the one hand, the vinegar in the other, and then she began to mix them together in a glass. And you remember what happened? There was a reaction, a big reaction. Suddenly, you had a miniature volcano erupting out of that glass. And by itself, the baking soda didn't do anything, and by itself, the vinegar didn't do anything except sit there and smell bad. But put those two things together and you got a reaction. You got some excitement. Everything began to bubble and fizz. The liquid in that container could not sit still. It came running up out of the glass. Once you put those two elements together, once they made contact, something big happened. Well, over and over again, that same lesson is taught and demonstrated throughout the Bible. That when we were made, we were made to be connected. And not just connected to each other, but most importantly, we were made to be connected with God. And when that connection takes place, things happen. Things begin to change in our lives. See, apart from God, you leave God out of the picture. You try to do life on your own, and it's just not going to amount to much. Even when over the course of your days, you do a lot of good things. For example, think about the Roman Empire. For 500 years, Rome ruled the world, one of the greatest empires of all time. For 500 years, they were in charge. And over that time, there were 77 different men who wore the title Caesar. That was their version of the emperor. 77 different men. And yet, as glorious as that empire was, if I were to ask you today, give me the names of five of those men who served as Caesar, most of you couldn't do that. I mean, unless you've been watching Jeopardy or you majored in ancient Roman history back in college, maybe then you could give me five or six names, but even then, you wouldn't know them that well, and all the others had long since been forgotten. Or there were 332 pharaohs who ruled in the land of Egypt, and yet today you can only remember the name of one of them, King Tut. And he was actually one of the very minor pharaohs. But the only reason you remember his name, King Tut, is because a couple of years ago you watched a movie called Night at the Museum. But think about this. Here were kings and dictators. Here were people who built pyramids and coliseums. Here were people who fought battles and conquered nations. Here were people who sat on a throne with all this power and glory and fame. And yet today, we've all but forgotten about them. We, we don't even care who they were or what they did. And yet 2,000 years ago, there was a lady by the name of Mary who took a little bottle of perfume, very expensive perfume, and poured every bit of it on the feet of Jesus just to express her love and devotion to him, just to show her gratitude for the connection she had with him. And on that night, as Mary did that, Jesus made this prophecy. He said, wherever the gospel is preached, her story is going to be told. And here it is 2,000 years later, and it's happening. In dozens of languages all over the world, people are still reading about Mary. They're still talking about her, still being inspired by her to want to make that connection with Jesus too. See, just like the Bible teaches in John chapter 15, Jesus is the vine and we are the branch, which means apart from him, we bear no fruit. Apart from him, we're nothing, nothing but a dead branch. But you make that connection with the vine, you make that connection with Jesus, and things begin to happen. Things begin to change in your life. Things begin to blossom in your life. Your life begins to become fruitful and productive, like Mary, fruitful and productive in an eternally significant way. Now, this morning, I want to show you how that's illustrated for us in the Old Testament, and then we're going to come to the New Testament and focus in on this man named Peter. But before we get there, just kind of keep the life of Peter in the back of your mind as we look at this Old Testament illustration of this importance of being connected with God and how when you have that connection, things begin to happen. Just keep Peter back here in the back of your mind as we look at this Old Testament illustration just to notice the parallels and the similarities. Back in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, you know, you start to read your Bible, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then you come to that book of Numbers. 
And in the book of Numbers, we read about a rebellion that was beginning to take place against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. They were the two that had been picked by God to lead his people out of Egypt and bring them to the promised land. Well, there came a point in time when some among the Israelites thought that Moses and Aaron are no longer fit to lead. We need to have somebody else running the show. Well, Numbers chapter 16, God puts an end to that rebellion in a dramatic way. One day, he says, i got to put a stop to this. One day, he just suddenly opens up the ground, creates a giant sinkhole, a giant grave, that literally swallows up three men, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, because they're the three that have started this whole riot. And then God sends fire from the sky that immediately burns up 250 more of those rabble-rousers, just like that. <laughs> Rebellion's over. But then you come to Numbers chapter 17 and God does something interesting because he wants to confirm for the rest of the nation, for all of Israel, that he really has called and chosen Moses and he really has called and chosen Aaron to be his leaders. And it's especially Aaron that God is concerned about because there seems to be a lot of questions about him. Remember, Moses had gone up to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the tablets from God and he was gone for 40 days. And during that 40 day period of time, Aaron was left in charge. Well, with Aaron in charge, things started to get out of hand. The people started to get restless. They began to go astray, and they ended up convincing Aaron to build for them a golden calf. So think about that. Here's Aaron. He's the one supposed to be leading the people and keeping them close to God, yet here he is being led astray by them. Now, doesn't that incident prove this guy's not fit to lead? He just doesn't have the spine, the courage to stand up for what is right. He too easily goes along with the crowd. He too easily gives in and caves in and compromises. This guy's just not dependable. I mean, hey, it was only for 40 days. We're talking about a short period of time. And yet in that short period of time, he just crumbled under the pressure. This guy's not dependable. He's not reliable. He doesn't have what it takes to be a leader. But God thinks otherwise. So Numbers chapter 17, in a very dramatic way, God wants to show his support for Aaron, his support for Aaron's leadership. So Numbers chapter 17, God has Moses to gather the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there are, to meet Moses at the tabernacle, and each man is to bring his staff, and each man is to take the time and write his name on that staff so there won't be any mistake about which stick belongs to which man. And this includes Aaron because he's the leader of the tribe of Levi. So the next morning they gather there with Moses. Each man has got a staff. They begin to write their names in the staff, and then each one hands a staff to Moses. He takes all 12 staffs, and under the direction of God, he brings them into the tabernacle, into the innermost room, the Holy of Holies, God's room. And under the direction of God, he's to lay those 12 staffs in front of the Ark of the Covenant, the golden box that symbolizes God's throne, that represents his leadership. And Moses is told to lay those 12 staffs on the floor and just leave them there overnight. So here you have 12 sticks, 12 dead pieces of wood lying on the floor waiting for some kind of sign from God because only the Lord can give life to that which is dead. And sure enough, the next morning, something's happened. I mean, God's been at work. I mean, the evidence is undeniable. God has just made it clear who he wants leading the work here at the tabernacle. Because the next morning when Moses comes in, he gathers all 12 of those staffs and he brings them outside so everybody in Israel can see. And now it's obvious one staff is now different from all the rest. I mean, very different. And it's the staff that has Aaron's name on it. Suddenly that dead stick has come to life. In a literal way, that staff has become like a little tree that's beginning to blossom and bear fruit. And not just any kind of fruit, but the fruit of almonds. And all of this happened in a matter of 12 hours? I mean, a miracle has occurred, something that only God could bring about. Now, here's what fascinates me. 
There is nothing in the text, when you read through Numbers chapter 17, nothing in that text that seems to indicate that Aaron's staff was made out of almond wood so that you would have expected this kind of result. No, everything in the text seems to show that Aaron's staff is just like anybody else's staff. It's just an ordinary stick made out of ordinary wood. But now, because of the work of God, because God got a hold of that staff, it's become like a tree and it's beginning to bear fruit, not just any kind of fruit, but the fruit of almonds. And that's significant for two reasons. Some of the decorations that you find on the inside of the tabernacle, like the lampstand. Every one of those lamps that were lit by the priest, they were made in the shape of an almond flower with the buds and the blossoms. So when God takes Aaron's staff and has it begin to blossom like a tree, not just any kind of tree, but the tree, uh, an almond tree, this is God's way of saying, here's where I want Aaron to work, and here's where I want Aaron to take the lead in that work. And then the other reason why this is significant is this. In that part of the world, in the spring of the year, after a long winter, it's the almond tree that always comes to life first. Before any of the others begin to bear fruit, it's the almond tree that takes the lead and begins to bear fruit while all the other trees still look like they're dead and asleep. So for God to take Aaron's staff, just an ordinary stick made out of ordinary wood, and suddenly it begins to produce when all the other staffs don't, and to have Aaron's staff take the lead and begin to produce almonds, that's a significant sign from God. That's God's way of saying, I want you to know this man, Aaron, he's mine. He's my man. He's the one I've chosen to be priest. And I want you to know that when I get a hold of him, when I get a hold of this man's heart, all kinds of good things will begin to come out of his life. Now, we move over to the New Testament. Notice the parallels and the similarities between what God does through Aaron, when he gets a hold of him there in the Old Testament, and what God's going to be able to do for Peter when he really gets a hold of his life. Peter is mentioned by name uh, more than 181 times in the New Testament. That's more than anybody else except Jesus. That's even more than the Apostle Paul. So with all this mention, that means we have a chance to really observe. And as you study Peter's life, you learn really quickly, this guy, is a, a, he's a man of ups and downs. I mean, stable, steady, sure-footed. Those are not expressions you would use to describe Peter. He's a man of extremes, a man of highs and lows. In fact, six different times in the book of Matthew, you'll watch Peter either say something or do something, and even though he has good intentions, and he really means well, yet all six times he ends up making just a giant mess where either he has to be corrected and put in his place or somebody else has to come along and, and rescue, you know, help put him back in his feet again and save him from his failure because he rushed ahead when he should have waited. He was sleeping when he should have been praying. He was talking when he should have been listening. Understand, Peter's a man of great courage. He's never afraid to take on a challenge. But in times of danger, Peter tends to get overconfident. And as a result, he gets careless. And as a result, he gets himself into all kinds of trouble. Now, how can you trust a guy like that to be a leader? And especially a leader in the Lord's church, oh, no way. Prime example, the night before the cross. Here's Jesus in the upper room, and he turns to his 12 disciples, and he says, on this night, you're all going to fall away because of me. And that expression, fall away, that's a key expression you're going to find here in 2 Peter. It's the whole reason why Peter's writing this letter, because right now there's all these false teachers beginning to infiltrate the church and trying to lead people astray, and Peter wants to keep that from happening. Hey, I've been in that kind of circumstance before. I, I know how dangerous it can be. You can't be naive about this kind of stuff, because I once was. And if you don't take this stuff seriously, you'll easily slip and lose your way, like I did. The night before the cross, Jesus turns to those 12 disciples and says, on this night, you're all going to fall away because of me. As they put me on trial, as they lead me to the cross, you're going to fall away. And you remember, Peter speaks up right away and says, oh, no, Lord, not me. They might, but I won't. I won't fail. I won't fall away. 
big boast, big claim, and Peter really means it. And yet this night he's going to fall too, bigger than all the rest. See, his heart's good, he means well, but what Peter doesn't recognize is his heart is so weak. He can't stand on his own, he can't stand apart from Jesus. So Jesus turns to Peter and says, oh, Peter, on this very night, you of all people, you are going to deny me three times. And he does. It's a devastating moment in his life. And you would think on that night with that awful act of betrayal that if you're Jesus, hey, it's time to call it quits. Peter, I've been working with you for three and a half years trying to make some out of you. And after all of that, you do this to me. Enough. It's obvious you're not reliable. You're not dependable. It's obvious I just can't count on you anymore. You're not qualified to be a leader in my church. We're cutting ties. I'm going to go find somebody else. Yet the surprising thing is this. Jesus doesn't do that. No, on this very night when he turns to Peter and says, three different times you're going to you're deny me, yet Jesus also offers this word of hope. says, but when you come back, and you will, Peter, you will return to me because on this night I'm praying for you. Peter, just know this, that when you come back to me, I still got plans for you because I intend to use you to, and he uses this language, to strengthen your brothers. Isn't that amazing? Here's a guy who for much of his life was so unstable and unsteady, but now because of the work of Jesus, once Jesus gets his hands on his life, now because of the work of Jesus, he becomes a pillar of truth, a pillar that God's going to use to keep other people from going astray which is what, exactly what Peter's doing as he writes this letter. Let's take a look. This morning, we're just going to look at one verse. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Let's just kind of dig into this one verse. Got to kind of get a sample of what we're going to be reading in this letter. Simeon, Peter. That's how it literally reads in the, in the Greek. It's Simeon. Uh, back in the first century, they would shorten that and call him Simon. Simeon, Simon kind of used interchangeably, like my son-in-law, Rob, that you see most Sundays up here on the stage making announcements or preaching. Officially, formally, on the birth certificate, his name's Robert. But we call him Rob for short. So in the first century, he'd have this name, Simeon, Simon. Here's the interesting thing. That was the most popular name for boys in first century Israel. Nine other people in the New Testament wear that name, too. And the reason why it was so popular was because in the previous century, there had been a war hero. A fellow by the name of Simeon Maccabeus. And Simeon, he was a high priest, and he teams up with a guy named Judah. They call him Judah the Hammer. And these are the two guys that take the lead, and they lead a revolt. They, they decide to take on the, the Greek army, the mightiest army in the world at that day and time. I mean, the odds are all stacked against them, but Judah and Simeon, they take the lead, and they get everybody else excited and all stirred up, and they, and they begin to fight against the Greeks to help set the Jewish people free, and they succeed. I mean, it's one of the most glorious moments in the history of Israel. To this day, Jewish people still celebrate that moment. Problem was, the success didn't last. I mean, several years passed by. Simeon and Judah are no longer around. You know, here they, they've kicked the, Jew, the Greeks out of their land. Now it's ours. The Jewish people think, once again, it's ours and ours alone. And then the Romans come along, and they take over. And once again, the Jewish people find themselves being oppressed by a foreign empire. Well, by the next century, the hope was this, maybe another Simeon. Or Simon will rise up to save the day. So it became in the first century a very patriotic thing to do to give your boy a name like that. So to have a name, Simeon, means he's got a name with rich, rich heritage behind it. And yet Jesus comes along and says, hey, if, if we're going to work together, I want to give you a different name. I'm not going to use Simeon. I know that's what everybody else calls you. And I know you're really proud of that name, but I have a different name in mind. Here's what's unusual. The name that he gives to him is Peter. That was in the early part of the first century. Nobody else had a name like that. Nobody. Nobody even thought of using that word, Petros, using that as a name. 
That was the word that they used, Israel, uh, the Jewish people, first century, that's the word they used to talk about rocks and stones. Hey, look at all that Petra, all that Petros, all those rocks and stones out there in the field. Before we can even think about trying to plant something out there, we've got to get all that Petra, all that Petros. We've got to get all those rocks and stones out of there. Nobody ever thought of using that noun as a name until Jesus came along. And Jesus said, I have a very specific name in mind for you. You're not going to be Simi anymore. You're going to be Peter, Petros. And the reason why I'm going to call you that, because that's what I intend to do in your life. I intend to transform you into this rock steady kind of leader. So for somebody like Jesus to come along and give him this new name means he's really going to stand out because nobody else wears a name like that. Where'd you get that name? Peter. I've never heard anybody called that before. Where'd you get that from Jesus? Well, why did he call you that? And all of a sudden, Peter's got an opportunity to talk, to witness. Hey, let me tell you something about this Jesus. You've never met anybody like him before. And after I met him, you talk about things happening in my life. You talk about things changing. Boy, it's incredible, the transformation he brought about. So it's like right here at the very beginning of the letter, it's like Peter's giving us a before and after picture. Here's my life. Before I met Jesus, I was a fisherman named Simeon. And I was a guy with all kinds of dreams and ambitions, but I just never amounted to much because I had trouble staying focused. I was just up and down and all over the place. I had all this zeal and energy and passion, but I, I couldn't focus it. I just couldn't follow through. But then Jesus came into my life. And man, when I made connection with him, do you talk about things happening, things changing? When Jesus really began to get a hold of my heart, I became a much different man, a much better man. And that's why to this day, I have chosen to be his disciple. I want to follow him. And that's why I'm writing this letter, because I want to do everything I can to encourage other people to follow him too. So, Simeon Peter. And here's one of the major ways in which Jesus has changed his life. He's a servant. Instead of following my heart, I've chosen to follow his heart. I found the best way to live is not to live by my instincts. Hey, I've got a hunch about this. I've got a feeling about this. I'm going to follow my heart. No, I found I've discovered the best way to live life is to follow his lead. Let him, let Jesus set the direction for my life. I am here to serve and please him. Not only a servant, he's an apostle. It means he's been equipped with unique powers and a unique sense of authority so that he can be. This leader, the kind of leader God wants him to be, he can be a leader in God's church. So this is the one that's talking to us in this letter. Simeon Peter, the servant and apostle of Jesus, who is our Messiah. And who's he writing to? Well, he's writing to all those who have obtained or received a faith, meaning a life. We've got a life from Jesus. So he's not just talking to people back in the first century. He's talking to us. People who received a life that is of equal standing, equal honor, equal importance. We can have a life with Jesus that's just as rich and rewarding is what Peter had. Why? Because the Jesus who made things right for him is the Jesus who made things right for us. But here's the problem. Back in the first century, when Peter's first writing this letter, and he's thinking about that group of Christians over there in Asia Minor that he's writing to, they're in danger right now taking this blessing they have. They don't realize what a blessing is. We got this life with Jesus. But they're in danger of taking this blessing and throwing it away. Their trust in Jesus is kind of weak. It's wavering because they got the wrong voice in their ears. They got all these false teachers who are talking to them and, and trying to lead them astray. And yet Peter's writing this letter to strengthen their grip on the truth, to call them back to the life they were made to live. You weren't called to live that way. You were called to share life with Jesus. So think of it like this. Remember that morning when your car wouldn't start? 
The battery had lost its charge. So in order to get the car going again, what did you do? You went over and you asked your neighbor for some help. Hey, can you bring your car alongside me and attach the cables so the strength and power of that good battery can now be transferred to the weak battery? Well, that's exactly what God is calling for Peter to do. He's calling Peter through this letter to come alongside all these Christians who are struggling and wrestling without. They're just confused because they got these false teachers talking to them and bending their ears and filling them with all kinds of bad ideas. Now they're not sure what's true, what isn't. I I don't know for sure. Their faith has been shaken. And God has called for Peter to come alongside and attach his heart to their heart so he can strengthen and encourage and restore their confidence in Jesus. Isn't this exactly what Jesus called Peter to do? You remember chapter 5 when Jesus first called Peter to be his disciple? Drop the nets, follow me. Just give that up and come follow me. And you remember the words that he spoke on that occasion? Luke chapter 5, he said, From now on, Peter, instead of catching fish, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to train you how to catch people. And when Jesus spoke those words, he was meaning, hey, catching people is not a thing like catching fish. They're not similar at all. It's a whole different kind of business. In other words, when you're trying to catch people, you don't hook them and stab them like you would with fish. And you don't bait them and trick them and lead them on like you would with fish and like the false teachers are doing with these people here. Catching people is a whole different kind of business from trying to catch fish. That's why I need to take some time here to teach you and train you how to do that. And the word that Jesus uses there in Luke chapter 5 about catching people is a word that literally means to rescue. In other words, you catch them in this sense, you keep them from falling. You see somebody trip and stumble because of a sin. You see somebody trip and stumble because of a trial. You've got to be there as they're losing their balance. You've got to be there to catch them. It means, hey, I'm your brother in Christ. And because I'm your brother in Christ, I'm responsible for you. I'm not going to let you fall into despair. I'm not going to let you fall into disbelief. I'm not going to let you fall for that cult. I'm not going to let you fall for that scheme. I'm not going to let you fall for that temptation. When you grieve, when you suffer, when you're struggling with doubts, I'm committed to be at your side to help catch you and build you up and help you stand. And that's exactly the kind of ministry that Peter's carrying out here as he writes this letter. He is a disciple who is in the process of making disciples, helping others and keeping others connected to Jesus. So you notice how he finishes this verse? It just talks about Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes things right for us. And Jesus is our God and our Savior and our Messiah. See, we've received a life, a faith, a life with Jesus. It's just as precious to us as it was to the Apostle Peter. But we receive this because of Jesus, because he's the one that made things right for us. He is our God and our Savior. He is Jesus the Christ. He is Jesus our Messiah. Here's the picture. Think of a little boy. And he's out playing in the front yard when this dog comes running along. He's on the loose. Mean dog. Big dog. And the dog comes running along and he notices the boy and he stops and turns and looks and begins to growl. So here's this beast that is so much bigger than that boy. Here's this angry dog now baring his teeth and growling at the boy so the little kid is just scared to death. What does he do? He immediately turns and grabs the leg of his father and he immediately just buries his face in his father's side. See, he's not staring at the danger anymore. He's staring at the one who can save him from that danger. That's exactly what Peter's going to be encouraging us to do all the way through this letter. Whenever trouble comes our way, no matter what shape or form that trouble comes in, whenever trouble comes our way, turn to Jesus because it's in him and him alone that we find our victory. It's in him and him alone that we find our hope and our peace and our strength and our joy. Stay connected to him because just like Aaron in the Old Testament, 
And just like Peter in the New Testament, when God gets a hold of you, things are going to happen. Things are going to change. When God really gets a hold of your heart, all kinds of good things will begin to come out of your life and begin to come out of my life. Let's pray.